Please pray with me. Precious Lord, our world is in turmoil, filled with us sinners who have brought misery and pain, fallen way short of your ways, and failed to follow you. May your word speak loudly and clearly to us today, and may we be so brave and bold, clothed in festal apparel, to acknowledge that you, who created us in your image, love us and yearn for us to follow your path. In your holy name we pray. Amen. The Old Testament scripture this morning is from the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It is the fourth vision, Joshua and Satan. Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And to him he said, See, I have taken your guilt away from you, and I will clothe you in festal apparel. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him in the apparel. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Then the angel of the Lord assured Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament lesson this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, the 13th chapter, verses 8 through 14. So listen now for the word of God to the church. <clears throat> Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know what time it is how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone. The day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the 14th century, the Christian church in the Western world was radically divided. Two rival popes both claimed supremacy over European Christianity. One sat in Rome, the other sat in Avignon, France. Not surprisingly, this rift in the fabric of the church became a political and a military divide as well as kings and countries lined up behind one pope or the other, all of them willing to fight and even die to make sure that their side won. The woman who would become known as St. Catherine of Siena was a child of this conflict. She was the 23rd child of her parents, Jacopo and Lapa. And I will pause for a moment to let that statistic land. 23 children. Now, their daughter may have been the saint, but you have to think that old Jacopo and Lapa at least deserved a papal high five or something for raising that big of a family without killing somebody. But I digress. Catherine was a joyful and merry little girl who could brighten up a room just by entering it. She was never formally educated. She never married. She chose instead to enter a Dominican order of nuns. To prepare for her call, she spent three years in total isolation and in contemplative prayer. And when that time was over, she was very fearful of actually going back out into the world. She worried that mixing with people again would undermine all of that spiritual work that she had done. But she was also convinced that no one can truly love God without also intensely loving one's neighbor. Catherine did that so well that she quickly became known as someone who could resolve feuds and rivalries among Italian families Soon, other countries began to call on her, and it was not long before she was summoned into the greatest rivalry of the day, the schism that had divided the Roman Catholic Church. At the highest levels of power, this humble girl worked for peace between two rival popes, and she was amazingly successful, but it also took a terrible toll upon her spirit and upon her body. At one point, she poured out her pain before God, saying, I have nothing to give except what you have given me. So take my heart and squeeze it out over the church. And that is essentially what happened. Over the next 18 months, Catherine literally poured herself out for the good of the church. And in 1380, while in Rome at the behest of the Pope, Catherine collapsed of a stroke. Eight days later, she was dead. She was only 33 years old. 
I begin with this history because Paul's admonition that we are to put on Christ was central to Catherine's understanding of who she was and who she was called to be. As people around her waged war with one another, as hostility and fear seemed to be winning out over love and peace in her world, she struggled day by day, even minute by minute, to do as Paul says, to lay aside the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light, to live honorably, not in quarreling and jealousy, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. One of her most powerful prayers reads as follows. Eternal goodness, you want me to gaze into you and see that you love me, to see that you love me gratuitously so that I may love everyone with the same love. You want me then to love and serve my neighbors gratuitously by helping them spiritually and materially as much as I can without any expectation of selfish profit or pleasure. Nor do you want me to hold back because of their ingratitude or persecution or for any abuse I may suffer from them. What then shall I do to come to such a vision? I shall strip myself of my stinking garment, and by the light of most holy faith, I shall contemplate myself in you, and I shall clothe myself in your eternal will. That's pretty much the whole deal right there, I would say. That's the sermon. Because we can all relate to Catherine's struggle. In this present world that we live in, from the very top of the political pyramid all the way down to our community and our church, we are all getting smattered with the muck and mud of dissension, debauchery and licentiousness, quarreling and jealousy. And we know that we have to somehow shed the nasty clothes of the world and put on something better, something cleaner, something purer. We know we need to change our clothes. We just don't know how to do it. It reminds me of a great quote from the movie Glory where the white Colonel Shaw and the black private Trip are having a private conversation about the bloody mess of the Civil War, the sinful mire of politics and power and religion and guilt and bigotry that they were all drowning in. It stinks, Shaw says. Yeah, it stinks bad, Trip replies. And we are all covered up in it. Ain't nobody clean. And after a moment, he adds, it would be nice to get clean, though. 
the universality of this painful human reality, our awareness that we are all covered up in the thick muck of sin and brokenness, that none of us are clean, but all of us long somehow to feel clean again. I think that's the reason that the metaphor of shedding our dirty worldly clothes in favor of clean heavenly robes is such a common refrain of Scripture. We heard it this morning from the prophet Zechariah who describes Joshua's filthy clothes being replaced with clean festal apparel. Isaiah 2 says we are all unclean, that even our righteous deeds are like filthy cloth. In the New Testament, we're told that receiving the sacramental washing of baptism is like being clothed with Christ. And Revelation explains that the saints who surround the throne of God, those ones who have endured the great tribulation and trials of life and made it faithfully to the end, they are all cleaned in gleaming white robes, washed in the blood of the Lamb. I've been thinking a lot lately about this image. Specifically, what does it mean to put on Christ. Catherine of Siena pledged to clothe herself in the eternal will of God, but what did that mean to her? What did that feel like to her? How did Zechariah the prophet picture that festal apparel of God? It would be nice to get clean in some heavenly clothing, but what are we really talking about? So as I thought about this, two extremes came to mind. In one way, the garment of Christ can be seen as a kind of armor, a way to protect us from the world. It could be an armor of distance. Like Catherine, who spent her early years walling out the world, isolating herself in prayer in a humble nun's cell. Or like the desert fathers of old who left the cities and went out into the deserts of Egypt, who lived like mystics but then formed themselves into communities that later became the model for Christian monasticism all across the world. Or it could be an armor that does not shy away from the conflicts of the world but instead takes the form of a hard shell that we put on our person, mail and metal, to fend off spears of criticism, arrows of anger, blunt maces of anxiety that are always spinning overhead and looking for an opportunity to land. But there are also downsides to armor. Sure, armor can protect us from the swords and slashes of those who would do us harm, but armor also seals us off from the good things in life. When we isolate ourselves too much, we deprive ourselves of the love, support, and encouragement and consolation that other people can offer. Or if we armor up emotionally, trying to coat ourselves with Teflon so so that nothing can stick to us, we can become distant and unfeeling in another way. 
We can render ourselves unable to offer warmth and love to others. In both ways, armor is a heavy weight that cuts us off from the very best parts of ourselves. If we look at Christ, we see that this is the very opposite of who he was and how he lived. Christ never isolated himself or moved away from danger. He ran into danger in the name of love. Sure, he sought some alone time every now and then, but he never distanced himself from others. When weapons were drawn against him, he stood right in the path of the blows like a lamb to the slaughter without a shred of metal on his body. So no, I cannot imagine that the garment of Christ is like armor, at least not the kind that creates a barrier between us and other people. The other extreme, however, would be no defense at all. This understanding would make the garment of Christ seem more like the emperor's new clothes, like robes that we don only in our imagination. To be honest, this strikes me as way too similar to that common stress dream in which we suddenly realize to our horror that we are standing in front of the entire class completely naked and exposed. If this is what it means to put on the garment of Christ, then everything can get to us. Not only every punch, but every little slight Every little slash, dig, jab, and backhanded compliment can land on us. And after a while, the cumulative effect is devastating. It is like the death of a thousand little cuts, each of which may only draw a few drops of red, but taken together over time can result in a lethal loss of blood. Suffering is part of the Christian life. That is clear from Scripture, and it is obvious from the life of Christ. But we as Christians have never believed that suffering, for the sake of suffering, is justified. The only way we can make sense of the death of Christ, the only way that the absurdity of an immortal God suffering a mortal death can be understood at all is that something that looked like weakness was transformed and shown to be power. Even on the cross, Jesus was neither passive nor powerless. Even as he was being broken, Jesus had the full power of heaven and earth with him, behind him, above him, all around him. No, to put on the garment of Christ does not mean that we just strip down to our barest human frailty and take our licks for the sake of taking our licks. We are not called to endure humiliation and insult with stoic fatalism. No, to put on the garment of Christ is to somehow shed ourselves of something dark and corrosive that is weighing us down and holding us back and to replace it with some kind of heavenly gift that is both real and powerful. 
So we have to say that to put on Christ is to stand somewhere in between the middle of these two extremes. It cannot be something that removes us from the world or puts a metallic hard barrier between us and others. Nor is it something that leaves us naked and unprotected. Mystically and powerfully, the garment of Christ is clearly meant to prepare us for battle in some way. But it is a different kind of battle. It is not a war waged with steel or weapons. This battle is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. In short, to put on Christ is to prepare for a battle that is waged with love. That is the power of the garment of Christ. That is the wisdom of the garment of Christ. That is how the garment of Christ prepares us for battle, not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers and the principalities, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Apostle Paul, who met the risen Christ, wanted his churches to prepare themselves for this kind of spiritual battle. And that is why he urged them to take up the whole armor of God and to stand firm. And then he told them that they needed to stand firm with the belt around their their waist being truth that the breastplate that guarded their heart should be righteousness, that the shoes on their feet would be made for walking for the gospel of peace. He urged them to carry a shield not made of worldly metal, but a shield of faith, and he promised them not to worry about it, that that shield would be strong enough to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one, On our heads, the only helmet we need is the assurance of salvation. And in our hands, our only weapon need be the word of God. We are called to wield the blade of that word, not to harm or shame or bruise our enemies, but rather to share with them the power of its love. It is, I will admit, a narrow gate that few find and even fewer pass through. Ain't nobody clean, but it would be nice to get clean, though. So as we close, I invite you to pray with me the prayer of a faithful servant and peacemaker of old in the hope that we, together and individually, might do as she did and put on the Lord Jesus Christ.
Let us pray. Eternal goodness, you want us to gaze into you and see that you love us, to see that you love us gratuitously, so that we may love everyone with the very same love. You want us to love and serve our neighbors gratuitously by helping them spiritually and materially as much as we can without any expectation of selfish profit or pleasure. Nor do you want us to hold back because of their ingratitude or persecution or for any abuse we may suffer from them. What then shall we do to come to such a vision? We shall strip ourselves of our stinking garments and by the light of most holy faith, we shall contemplate ourselves in you and with your help, we shall clothe ourselves in your eternal will in the glorious garment of Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.